Ephemeral is a production of iHeart3D Audio. For full exposure, listen with headphones. It's that magical time of year, full of monsters, ghouls, and all manner of horror movies. In the 1950s, a new idea in horror hit the airwaves, repurposing vintage scary films for a TV audience. The host of this endeavor was also something the public had never seen before. Iconic for her piercing screams, morbid humor, and suggestive costuming. Her name was Myla Nurmi, better known by the character she created, Vampira. Not to be confused with Elvira, but more on that later. Today, producer Trevor Young takes us through the haunting life and legacy of one of horror's most influential characters, Vampira. What I need is a vampire cocktail to settle my nerves. It'll not only settle them, it will petrify them. Mm. A vampire cocktail. You like it? It hates you. She was sexy, but she was untouchable. She had a sense of humor, a bizarre sense of humor. I've had several letters asking whether olives or cherries should be used in making my cocktail. Well, actually, neither is necessary, since they'd only disintegrate upon being put into the cocktail. However, if you want to use some garnish, you can drop in an eyeball. If you happen to have an extra one around the house. This was the 1950s. This was during the Eisenhower administration, and no one had ever seen a person like Myla, and she was on television. And here she was talking about how sad it was that her sister had died and they had to bury her alive, and that she had Yellow Cross insurance that you could buy because if you were an unsuccessful suicide, you would have insurance to try again. My name is Sandra Nimi, and I am the author of the book Glamour Ghoul which is a biography of my aunt, Myla Normie, a.k.a. Vampira. Sandra says she never really knew her aunt Myla all that well, but knew about her from TV. Decades later, in the 1980s, Sandra decided to track her aunt Myla down, who by this point was in her mid to late 60s. I was always obsessed with her. And I think that was because I was an only child and I always wanted a family, a bigger family. And I had this Aunt Myla in Hollywood that I knew was beautiful and I thought as a child, kind of a celebrity. And I enlisted the help of the Red Cross to try to find Myla and they couldn't find her. Well, at that time she was going by an alias and that alias was Helen Heaven. So that's why they couldn't find Myla Normie. I remained obsessed. I have to know her. I want to talk to her. And then one day, as fate would have it, I got a star magazine and there was Myla Normie suing Elvira for $10 million. And I went, she's alive. Myla's alive. And I immediately sat down and wrote a letter to her attorneys who were mentioned in this article. And I said, please forward this letter. And they did. And Myla responded right away. And uh, we had a long letter writing campaign and it wasn't that long before I said, you know, I'm gonna come to Los Angeles. And off my daughter and I went to Hollywood to see Myla. I spent a week with Myla. I got to know her. We continued writing, and then at Christmas time of 92, she quit writing, and that hurt my feelings. I thought I had hurt her feelings, or she was mad at me for whatever reason I didn't know, and I even called the police to get a welfare check because I thought maybe she died. But they said, no, she's fine, and so I just left her alone. Then I found out in the newspaper that she died in 2008, January 10th, went to Los Angeles, 
and got granted to go into her apartment and started picking up all of her writings. Inside Myla's apartment, Sandra found an astoundingly detailed record of her aunt's life. It was full of papers and magazines and folders. And I thought, oh, well, this is how I can know who she really was. This is exciting to me. And I had a friend with me helping me. And I told her, anything that you find with Myla's handwriting, keep it. We'll put it in plastic bags and pictures and, you know, photos and things like that. When we came out of there, I had three black garbage bags full of writing. And sometimes there was a cohesiveness to it. There were pages and pages and pages on notebook paper that she had written on both sides. And sometimes it was just a little note, like a scrap of paper or written in the margin of a calendar. I found a half page glued to the back of a picture that was hanging on the wall. I found wadded up pieces of notebook paper in pockets of old clothes. And I just gathered everything up. I also found a reel-to-reel tape. And when we played it, she had recorded it in 1966. But anyway, I have two diaries a 1940, 41, 42 diary, and a 1956 diary. And boy, am I glad I got the 1956 diary because that was a very busy year for Vampira. And since then, Sandra has spent years sifting through that ephemera, dedicating herself to chronicling the story of Myla Nermi, a.k.a. Vampira. She was born in Gloucester, Massachusetts, and then her father got a job in Pittsburgh, Massachusetts. So they moved there. And in 1926, her father, who was an editor of a Finnish newspaper in America, there was a civil war going in Finland, and he wanted to be right there to see what was going on so he could report it. And he decided to take his wife's inheritance and go to Finland for maybe a year, he said. And he left his wife and his two small children. And he came back a year later and my grandmother had completely changed. She was no longer this submissive housewife. She was defiant and she had turned to alcohol. Then the family moved to Asheville, Ohio and they were there for maybe 10 years. Myla had friends. And then in the winter of 1934, he was sent to Duluth and it was in the heart of the depression and they almost starved to death when he lost his job. He was only doing a few hours on the radio a week and it wasn't enough to sustain them. They didn't even have electricity. They had very little food. Finally, an angel came through and said they wanted him back in Ashtabula. So back they went and thrived. Myla accompanied her father on lecture tours. He was much in demand. He said himself he was the man of 10,000 speeches. And he lectured against the evils of alcohol, of course. And he lectured for a president. He was paid to stump for Herbert Hoover. And later on, he became a huge proponent of FDR. But Myla went with him, and sometimes she spoke too, but she listened to all of his sermonizing. She knew his fire and brimstone approach. Myla told her father that she wanted to be an artist. And my grandfather thought artists meant someone who painted or drew pictures. He didn't know the meaning of what she meant. She wanted to be an artiste, you know, to be free and to be friends with people like her and nothing to do with domesticity at all. No way. She wanted freedom to express herself, to be creative. Eventually, the family settled in Astoria, Oregon, but apparently Myla quickly got bored and yearned for a more exciting life. 
she was going to go to New York and the parents put the kibosh on that and only agreed to allow her to go to Los Angeles where her mother's brother and wife lived. And that's how she got to Hollywood. And that's where Myla started looking for work. First as a radio monologist, she was interested, very, very much interested in being the first female Orson Welles because she was enamored with Orson when she heard him speak on the radio. Ah, strange it now seems to sit in my peaceful study, Princeton, writing down this last chapter of the record, begun at a deserted farm in Grover's Mill. Strange to watch children playing in the streets. The sound of his voice and the words that he chose, and he was her god. That was who she wanted to be. But she didn't have much luck getting a job in that area. You know, she tried a few things. She worked in a department store and was a model for hats and print ads because she had this beautiful face. It was also around this time that Myla started developing her unique fashion sense. And it was largely inspired by a certain Disney movie. This is no ordinary apple. It's a magic wishing apple. A wishing apple? Yes, one bite, and all your dreams will come true. Really? Yes, girlie. She went to see Snow White, and she was watching it, and there was Snow White, and humming, and happy, and this good little girl, and washing the dishes of the dwarves, and doing their laundry, and singing while doing it, and oh my God, Mila was so sickened by that, but then... And the evil queen came on the stage, all powerful and sexy and beautiful and demanding and in control. That's when Myla's brain exploded. And that's when she said, that's who I want to be. I don't want to be evil, but I want to be everything she is. The evil queen. And she never forgot that. She adapted part of the evil queen persona into Vampyra. Like many people starting off in Hollywood, Myla had a number of tough breaks and terrible experiences early on. She went to, I can't remember the person's name, but they were advertising for a radio monologist, exactly what Myla did. And so she applied. Now, mind you, she's only 19 years old from Astoria, Oregon, and goes into this shabby little studio type thing and the guy is there by himself and he tricks her into signing a piece of paper and he takes her in the back to take her picture and then he asks her to become nude from the waist up and all she had to cover herself was some see-through scarves and Milo was horrified. She knew she was locked in to that office, to that back part of that office. She couldn't escape and it was upstairs, no one would hear her scream. So she complied, and he took pictures of her with these scarves. She couldn't wait to get dressed, and as she flew out of the office after he unlocked it, he said, the proofs will be ready on Wednesday or whatever, and she just stormed out, running away from the man. And, of course, it was just a sham because... The proofs never showed up, and even when she went back to the office, the guy was gone and locked up. He was a charlatan. And then she tried to, I can't remember who, Mr. Clark, I think his name was. She went to interview for a job there, and he made a pass at her. He started moving his hands up her skirt, and she wrestled him and ended up breaking his glasses and ran out of his office. And then she said to herself, Hollywood is just filthy. Those were her words that she wrote. But one day, she met someone who had changed her life forever. She went with a friend of hers because it was the friend's birthday and ended up at Musso and Frank's. They had grabbed a serviceman outside to be their escort into the bar because Milo wasn't 21 yet. But they went in with the soldier and they sat down. Of course, they got served. And then Myla heard this voice in the back of her. 
and she couldn't believe her ears. It was Orson Welles in person, her god. And she couldn't help herself, and she ran over to his table and started babbling whatever it is that she did, then realized that she had interrupted him and his dinner companions and apologized and went back to her table, which was now gone. Her friend and the soldier boy had decided to boogie on out. So now she was alone. So she just sat there wondering what to do. And here comes Orson Welles over to her table by himself and invites her over to his table. So she goes over there and it's time to go. And he calls the cab and gives her a kiss. She lived in a hotel then, I think the Commodore Hotel. He got out of the cab and he said, I want to see where you live. And he walked her to the door. He didn't kiss her again, he left. Shortly thereafter, a bouquet of flowers arrived at the desk. They began a romance. At the time, it was during the war and Orson was always into magic. And he was putting up a type of carnival off La Brea in Los Angeles, where there were all kinds of tents and games, and he had his celebrity friends come and do tricks like sawing a woman in half and eating snakes and all of this sort of carnival kind of stuff. Well, Orson had quit sending flowers or coming after Mila, and it had been quite a while, and Mila was getting a little alarmed. What has happened? Has he ditched me? Is he not interested in me anymore? What's going on? She went to the little house on Hacienda that she had been seeing Orson at, and a man showed up in a bathrobe, and it wasn't Orson. And he said he didn't know Mr. Wells, and so Myla left. She thought, well, maybe he's moved. I don't know that man. Then she went to the carnival to look for Orson. There were pictures of all these celebrities that were going to be appearing. And she looked up at one of these pictures and it was the man in the bathrobe. And his name was Joseph Cotton. He was a famous actor in those days and also a very close friend of Orson Welles. So then Myla put two and two together. Aha, these two men have rented this house to entertain their girlfriends, whoever they may be. And so I'm just one of his girlfriends. God only knows how many more girlfriends he's got. Then while Myla was stewing in her apartment and not working, she realized she was pregnant and it was Orson Welles' child. And very shortly, like the same day or the next day, she was listening to the radio and they announced that Orson Welles had married Rita Hayward that morning at City Hall. So, Myla's world was plunged into complete blackness, if you can imagine. The son was put up for adoption, and up until only very recently, no one knew who the secret child was. But after she gave birth, Myla decided to shake off her grief and focus on her career. And that's when she got her first big break. After an initial string of disasters in Los Angeles, Myla briefly moved to New York City. And there, she nailed a role in a stage play called Catherine Was Great with Mae West. She got a part as a handmaiden in Catherine Was Great, but she irritated Mae West because she overacted. And Mae said, as an aside to the director, does it have to be so big? Because Myla was supposed to scream and fall to the floor and faint as she was informed her husband died. And Myla went overboard and Mae didn't like it. She didn't want to be upstaged. And eventually, May fired Myla after several months on Broadway. While she was in New York, Myla made another celebrity friend, Marlon Brando. And yet before this evening is over, you might give me the brush. 
You might forget your manners. You might refuse to stay. He was in his first Broadway play, and it was called "I Remember Mama." So they were both on Broadway at the same time, and one of the other handmaidens that was in Catherine was great was dating Marlon Brando, and she was bitching and complaining about what a cad he was. He was there one time for her, and then he was missing, and she just couldn't take it anymore. So Myla listened and listened, thought, you know, give me this guy's address. I'm gonna go over here and take care of him. He's just not gonna treat you like that. So she did. She went over there about two thirty, three o'clock one morning, knocked on the door, and this guy answered, and it was Marlon. And she started reading him the riot act, and he invited her into his apartment. And she didn't leave until noon the next day. And her friend from the play never spoke to her again, because obviously, Myla enjoyed herself with Marlon Brando. They started.、Uh, well, she never came right out and said it was a romance, but I'm pretty sure it was because she said, "I have to keep my female side under control," because obviously she found him very attractive, and they dated. I have a photo. It's an eight by ten. And Marlon is in costume for a movie. It looks like a Revolutionary War type uniform, and Myla's dressed to the nines, like she's going out for dinner. I have it, and it's very, very important to me. Then, Myla got cast in a horror slash burlesque Broadway show called Spook Scandals, and it only played for one night. But that one night turned out to be. Pretty great for Myla because she was inundated with offers from Hollywood by famous directors and producers, and she had her pick of who to choose to go to Hollywood and be interviewed by, and she chose Howard Hawks. He was the man who discovered Lauren Bacall, and he was very, very famous. Everybody knew Howard Hawks. He was a big deal. And she went home. She had a contract with Howard Hawks, and she waited for I don't know how long. Maybe it was a couple days, and the phone never rang. Well, Myla was incensed, and she went back to Howard Hawks and sat in his office and took out the contract from her purse and ripped it up into pieces and threw it on his desk and said to him, and she wrote this down. Please kindly dispose of these in your nearest wastebasket, and out the door she went, thus killing any opportunity she would ever have to be an actress. Since she was blacklisted from traditional acting roles, Myla decided she would work on doing her own thing, something entirely unique and fringe from Hollywood. And in October of 1953, she unveiled a new persona at the Bal Caribe Masquerade Ball. Apparently, this Bal Caribe was an annual event right before Halloween. It was a costume ball, and it was held at the Moulin Rouge. So he told Myla about it, and he said, "You have to come and just put on a costume and come. It's so much fun, and there'll be prizes." And Myla thought, "Wow,、oh, maybe I should do that because I'm wanting to get discovered. I want to be on television because she knew the door to movies was shut." So. She decided to go as Charles Adams' unnamed character at the time from his cartoon strip, *The Adams Family*. So I went there and I practiced my Victorian curtsy because I expected to win. But I had lavender makeup, you know, powdered with a little lavender, looking as though I had risen from the grave, turned a little blue, you know, barefooted like that that lady was, flat-chested. She bought some rayon from a fabric store. And she rented a wig from Max Factor, an Indian wig. So it was a long black wig. And then she applied her own makeup. She went barefoot, and the dress was low in the back, high in the front. She did not cinch her waist. She just wore it, the dress loose and raggedy. The sleeves were tattered, and the hemline was tattered. And she put on. Tomb-like makeup, she said, very, very white with a little bit of purple lavender. They went to the ball, and Myla won the costume prize, which was a transistor radio. 
but she had caught the eye of Hans Stromberg, program manager at ABC Channel 2, Los Angeles. And he looked for her for five months, from October to March. He finally talked to this guy, the one who had encouraged her at the beginning to go to the Balkrib. And he says, oh, she's easy to find. So they found me and they told me to come in. And I came in, he said, come in in costume. And I came in during the Ides of March, wearing a great Balenciaga cape coat. And the winds, the winds of the Ides of March were flapping it. And people were coming out of the little bungalow saying, oh, there's Hans Vampire. There's Hans. I had no hair. You just didn't see ladies with crew cuts in those days. But I had all sorts of things women didn't see in those days. You know? And Milo was interviewed by Hans Stromberg. He told her what he wanted. He wanted her to be the horror host. And she said, well, who else are you going to have from Adam's family? It was a cartoon in, that was published in the New Yorker in those days. And he said, oh, well, you know, we can't afford anybody else. We just want you. And Milo said, well, I can't possibly do it then because you would be ripping off Charles Adams. This particular character is his character. And he says, well, then I don't know what we're going to do. And she says, well, can I come up with something a little different? And he says, I'll give you four days. So Mila went home and she took her costume from October and turned it backwards. So then I saw a book by uh, John Willie, Bondage and Discipline. I said, aha, that's it. I had been a pinup model. I'd been doing cheesecake right at that time. So I took the cheesecake and the bondage and discipline and I cinched her waist. Her waist she cinched to in those days, 19 inches. And I put in the fishnet hose, I slit the dress, I changed Morticia's statement, right? I gave her Hollywood makeup and remembering too that there was a bit of Greta Garbo in here and something a little Dostoevsky and something just a wee bit spooky, like Norma Desmond, who had just turned me on big in Sunset Boulevard. I've made up my mind we'll bury him in the garden. Any city laws against that? I wouldn't know. I don't care anyway. I want the coffin to be white, and I want it specially lined with satin. Now when you see it, it looks like I'm imitating Norma Desmond, which I was, <laughs> but I didn't know it, you know, it was subliminal. She wore bust pads because she wanted the bust and the hips to be remarkably larger than this teeny tiny waist. She wanted to look like she was not even human, like she came in parts. Then she glued on some false fingernails that were three inches long and painted the nails. She made them out of margarine tubs and she got herself a black wig that she rented from a store downtown. She walked in to an interview with Hunt Stromberg four days later, dressed as what we know now as Vampira. Hunt Stromberg was floored. Of course, this was exactly who he wanted, and a star was born. And so, Milo assigned to bring her character to live TV on The Vampire Show. It premiered on April 30th, 1954. And then the next night it was on, at its regular time, midnight, May 1st, 1954. She didn't have the beginning where she walked down the corridor with my asthma of dry eyes. She didn't have that yet. That came a few weeks later. But she would just introduce herself, hello, I am Vampira, and she had this tiny, tiny waist and this low-cut blouse and these tattered sleeves and hemline and like she said, my tall, tall shoes, black hair, bizarre makeup with boomerang eyebrows that arched way up, and an overly pronounced red lip. Of course, she didn't see it because it wasn't colored television, but you could tell it was a different color lip. And started talking about death and how beautiful death was, and guillotines, and electric chairs. You know, I've often been asked, why I don't light my attic with electricity. Isn't that ridiculous? Everybody knows electricity is for chairs. And you can imagine what the audience thought in this Eisenhower era. 
like, what is this? Who is that woman? They'd never seen anything like her. The idea was that Vampira would host a new horror movie each night. She'd introduce the movie, come back for ad breaks, and close it out when it was finished. All while making clever, quote-unquote, jokes. Our little fairy tale tonight is called The Thirteenth Guest. The Thirteen makes it timely, topical, and terrifying. It's about a humorous fellow who dies telling a joke. Something of a deadpan comedian. Yes. Let me darken the room, and we shall commence. And right from the get-go, she was insanely popular. People were writing to the station, wanting to know more information. And within a couple of weeks, they had to bump up the time start from 12 to 11 so more people would be awake. And then Life Magazine called. Life Magazine. If you made Life Magazine in those days, you were a star. You had made it. And Life Magazine sent a photographer here down to Los Angeles to film Myla. And that's when the hallway candelabra dry ice entrance marked its beginning. They did that for Life magazine. I think she had a four-page spread. It wasn't just one page. It was four pages. It might have even been five. He took pictures of her in the back of, I can't remember what make car it was, but it was a convertible. It was an old-timey Victorian-age car, and Milo would sit in the back with a parasol over her head to keep the sun out. But the parasol was all shredded up. And then she would scream at green lights and want the convertible to go through the red lights. So she was photographed doing that, people staring at her like in broad daylight, like, who is that woman dressed like that, screaming? She was a hit. She was a huge hit. It was 1954. Somebody talking about death and beautiful suicides and eyeballs and frog brains and guillotines and oh my word, what else is she going to come up with? Sandra says that Myla felt more comfortable as Vampira than she did as herself. Especially at the beginning, I think that was her alter ego because sometimes she would just put on Vampira makeup. She had short blonde hair. And she would just leave her short blonde hair and put on her Myla clothes and go down to Googie's with a vampire face. I think there's a quote in the book, something about hiding behind the makeup. She could be more aloof. She could feel more powerful. She could be more distant if she had her vampire face on. Vampire gave her permission to be how she wanted to be. It was that little bit of the evil queen persona. She liked it. Myla claimed that she herself was very, very shy. She said that several times. I don't see that. I don't see Myla as being shy, but she claims that she was. Maybe she was when she was younger. I don't know. But she enjoyed being Vampira. She enjoyed every moment of it. She loved her. She says, I love vampires. She was my child. I brought her up and I fed her and I took care of her. And now when Milo was older, she would say, now it's time for her to take care of me. As Vampire became more popular, Milo was invited to join Bella Lugosi on the Red Skeleton show. I think there's somebody coming. Yes, it's my sister, the vampire. Yeah. The Vampire Show was eventually canceled in 1955, but Myla briefly took the show over to KHJ-TV, where she retained rights to the vampire character. Meanwhile, Myla started hanging out among the Hollywood elite. Schwab's was this celebrity hangout 
drugstore. Everybody went to Schwab's. That's where they got their medicine, their pills and their narcotics and everything else that they needed to function. And there was oftentimes just standing lonely. And so Mila hung out there too. But then a new coffee shop was built next door. In fact, they shared a common wall, Schwab's and Googie's. Googie's was a coffee shop. You walked in and to the left, there was a horseshoe type counter, probably with a pie case in the middle. So the people like Mila started hanging out in Googie's. It was the place to be in Hollywood. If you were just starting out in the movies, if you hoped to be an actor or an actress, if you were a rebel, if you were a free spirit, if you were young, you went to Googie's. The old school stayed at Schwab's. And Myla often said that there almost was a battle between the Schwabieros and the Googieites. And every once in a while, they'd go back and forth. Marilyn Monroe would come from Schwab's and come over and hang out at Googie's once in a while. And so would Jaja Gabor. And a few of the others would drop in to say hi. But mostly it was the young rebel type people. One of those rebels was perhaps the most famous rebel of all time, James Dean. You're tearing me apart! What? You, you say one thing, he says another, and everybody changes back again! She didn't know who he was. So Mila's sitting there with another guy, and a motorcycle drives up, and that was James Dean. And into Googies he comes. And she said she jumped up out of her booth and banged her crazy bones. And the guy with Jack and her said, he thought Myla had a stroke because she was just mesmerized, just staring with a peculiar look on her face that didn't change. And he said, what, 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 Myla? And Myla says, that guy right there, right there, right there that came in the door. Who is that? I must meet him. And the guy turned around and looked. He said, oh, that's James Dean. I was just in a movie with him. I want to meet him. I've got to meet him right now. They were introduced over by the cigarette machine. Anyway, that very same day, he asked her to go on his motorcycle up to his apartment. They became thick and fast friends after that. Very platonic relationship. Because I think from the get-go, this is nothing Myla wrote. Jimmy became the son she had to give up for adoption. And Myla became Jimmy's surrogate mother. She was always giving him advice because she was eight years older than he was. Not a lot of years, but she was more mature and wiser. And she was always giving it, don't do that, don't do that, do it this way, do it, you know. And usually he just ignored her, but he listened and they were good friends. And then here's the bizarre part. Jimmy was an unknown when they met. He had just completed East of Eden, which was his very first movie. He only made three. In East of Eden, his character name was Cal, spelled with a C. And Myla had given her adopted son a name so she could talk to him, even though he wasn't there. And she named him Cal with a K. So I wonder what Myla thought when she went, oh, he's Cal Trask, and I have a Cal. So this is the great universe telling me, you're not alone, your surrogate son is here. That's my thoughts. Myla and James Dean developed a passionate friendship that lasted for years. But it was also a friendship that would end in disaster for both of them. On September 30th, 1955, James Dean died in a tragic car accident, and it blew apart Myla's world. I don't think Myla ever loved anyone in this world as much as she loved James Dean. She never got over his death, ever. She loved him like a mother would. She couldn't believe that 24 years and his life was snuffed out. She had to leave town because there were too many memories of Jimmy here. She was going to go to New York. 
Marlon heard she was going to go to New York and he offered to give her some money to get to New York and she wouldn't take it. She had a couple hundred bucks and so off she went to New York and got herself an apartment. And as soon as she got back to Los Angeles, here was Whisper Magazine on the newsstand. And Whisper Magazine was the lesser cousin of Confidential Magazine. It was the gossip magazine of all the stars. And on the cover was a picture of Vampira and James Dean. And the headlines screamed something about that Vampira had caused the death of James Dean because she put a curse on him. And Myla contemplated suicide. That was it. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. The person that she loved more than anything in the world, she was accused of killing him. With her show canceled and her best friend killed, Myla fell out of work in Hollywood. However, in 1956, she got an offer from director Ed Wood to play a part in one of his movies. Can your heart stand the shocking facts about grave robbers from outer space? She didn't leave a lot of information behind about the Edward movie, but I know that she had met Edward at a birthday party for Bella Lugosi's son. He had said something to her, well, you're going to have to be in one of my movies sometime. And Myla said to herself, not a chance. Are you kidding me? She thought he was pathetic. One way to kill your career is star with Ned Wood movie. So then he sent one of his people over to Myla's apartment to ask her to be in his movie. Myla had lost her job as a vampire due to creative differences, let's say. Jimmy was dead. And she said, no, I don't think so. And he says, $200, and boy, did that look good for Myla, because she was almost out of cat food, like she said, and she had all these cats to feed. So, well, maybe just leave the script here, but I don't know. At first, Myla decided to leave Edward hanging and instead took a few other gigs. A few months later, Liberace came calling. The Las Vegas Hilton takes great pleasure in presenting The Liberace Show and starring Liberace. Because Bella Lugosi was supposed to be co-starring with Liberace in Las Vegas, but Bella became very, very ill and couldn't drop out. So he suggested Myla. So Liberace took him out upon it, and he asked Myla to be his co-star in Las Vegas for two weeks, and she jumped at the chance because Liberace was the highest-paid celebrity at the time. That's where she went, and that's where she met Elvis. Myla would keep running into these people, I'll tell you. Elvis was starring at exactly the same time across the street at the old frontier, and Mila was across the street at the Riviera. So they formed a romance. But when she got home, Mila found waiting at her doorstep the script for Ed Wood's new movie, then called Grave Robbers from Outer Space. Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. Myla never touched it. It just sat there. And then finally, Edward's friend came back and said, we're going to start filming here in November. You know, are you on? And she says, well, I've looked at the script now, and the script is so inane, I can't say any of it. I can't bring myself to say a word. It's so stupid. And this guy apparently said, well, we don't care. We only want your name anyway. And so that's why she didn't speak a word during the entire movie. Vampira's role in the eventually titled Plan 9 from Outer Space was entirely silent, but her presence was a huge part of the film. I was initially offered some lines, but the fact is that the character 
<clears throat> Although I was billed as Vampira, the character wasn't Vampira as I had conceived her. Vampira as I had conceived her was giddy, uh, out outrageous, and this was a different kind of a, because she was in a trance, and I just thought it would be better if she were in a trance, and I asked her, please do it mutely. Still, Milo was embarrassed to have done it. She didn't think anyone would see it. She was hoping that nobody would see it or recognize her or think about it. And I don't think she saw the movie in its entirety until like 1984. But she was shocked, surprised that it had become a cult favorite. And it was also voted the worst movie of all time. And I used to like to think about Citizen Kane, Orson Welles, the best movie of all time. Plan 9, the worst movie of all time, and they had a baby. For better or worse, Plan 9 is considered one of Vampira's most famous and iconic roles. When the movie had a cult resurgence in the 1980s, Vampira also had a new boost in popularity. Then, Tim Burton made a 1994 biopic called Ed Wood, where actor Lisa Marie portrayed Vampira in the film. Pardon me, Miss Vampira? Yes. Uh, you don't know me, but I'm Ed Wood. I'm a film producer, and I'm currently in production on a science fiction piece with Bella Lugosi and Swedish wrestler Tor Johnson. I don't understand. Do you want my autograph? No, I, I think my film is perfect for you. You want me to show it on my TV program? Well, I have nothing to do with that. You should call the station manager at Channel 7. No, 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 no. I don't want you to show the movie. I want you to be in it. <sighs> Look, I'm with some friends, and we're about to eat. Please, it would just take one second. Come on over, meet the backers. There is a really nice dentist from Oxnard. Look, buddy, I've got real offers from real studios. I don't need to blow some dentist for a part. Forget it. She went out to lunch with Lisa Marie, and she liked her because she was fellow Sagittarian. They both had, you know, November, December birthdays. The one thing she didn't like that Lisa Marie did is she says, when I posed as Vampira, I crooked my elbows and put my hands on my abdomen so you could see my tiny waist. That was very, very important to the character. And Lisa Marie would put her hands on her hips. That is not the way it's done. And I told her before she did it how to pose herself. Mila was very particular about her character. And that's one thing she did not like. I didn't think it was that true to Vampira. I thought... It showed Myla as Myla. She had long blonde hair. Myla had short blonde hair always. And sort of a gloomy Gus. Myla really was a funny person. She cracked jokes. She was very personable. In the movie, she was just sort of angry. That's how I looked at it. So I didn't think it was accurate. Myla didn't do much acting or make too many vampire appearances after Plan 9. She instead ran an antique store called Vampire's Attic, on top of a few other odd jobs. But when she got a second wind of fame from the Ed Wood hype in the 80s and 90s, she reveled in the spotlight. I think it did have an effect on her. I think she loved it because then, on top of being in demand, she was able to sell her artwork on eBay and support herself. That made her very excited. And so she did a lot of drawings and paintings. And I don't think she ever did any prose. She did some sketching that were very good. She did a pencil sketching of Marlon Brando. She did Jimmy very well. And then paintings. I have one of her paintings. A fan of hers sent it to me and I treasure it. And she was able to sell photographs. And she went to conventions, horror conventions. And she was able to sell her photos for $20 a piece, autographs. So that put money in her coffers, and she desperately needed it. 15 silent minutes, which has given me an entire new career. Thank you, Mr. Wood. <laughs> you listening? <laughs> With such renewed interest in Vampira, KHJ-TV decided they wanted to resurrect the Vampira show. So in 1981... They asked Myla to return to TV, but it didn't quite go as planned. They had done a lot of talking to Myla. They wanted to revive the vampire show, and Myla finally said, okay, but I'm not going to appear on camera. I'm too old, 
and they finally talked her into making appearances as Vampira's mother. And she said, well, Vampira doesn't have a mother. She just evolved. And eventually she says, okay, I'll appear on camera briefly once in a while and mostly in voice only. But you will hire a vampire of my choice. And they agreed to it. And they had a contest to select a vampire. Milo wasn't too keen on that because she wanted Lola Falana to be vampire which wasn't going to happen because Lola Falana was a big deal in Las Vegas at the time. They requested if she had anything from the original show and she said, yeah, she had some scripts and she had pictures of the set. She would bring those over to KHJ so that they could peruse them so they would know how to set up this new show and how to make the set look like her set, her original set that was such a success her poison bar, her marble coffee table, Rolo the spider, the death's head couch, the color of the sofa, red. Then she didn't hear from them anymore. And she tried to contact them and tried to contact them, nothing. So she finally went to the studio and says, hey, what gives? Well, such and so's on vacation and such and so's sick and blah, blah, blah. And then she finally, what she found out was, if you come back here, we've selected a vampire, and we'd like for you to meet her. Amila thought, now wait a minute, you told me I was going to be able to pick the new vampire. But she thought, well, the least I can do is go and take a look at her. So she went to back to the station, and Cassandra Peterson had not arrived yet. And she eventually showed up late, and she was wearing a red wig, and some kind of a full black skirt. And Myla thought, oh, brother, what is this? And one of the bosses of KJ said to her, this is the new vampire, and we gave her the rights. It's between you two girls, you fight it out. And Myla lost her stuff right then and there. You did what? You gave her the rights, my rights? She said some expletive deleted, let's just say. Out the door she went. And that was the end of that. They started production the first day, calling it The Vampire Show. And Myla had a cease and desist letter sent to them. You stop right now or I'm going to sue your butts off. And they changed the name to Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. But she was a ripoff of Myla. Myla said the only thing that was different between them was the fake boobs and the top knot on her head. Other than that, they were the same. Elvira's first show, called Elvira's Movie Macabre, ran from 1981 to 1986. Hello, darling. Yes, sir, it's Lilo Me, that gal with a shape that drives me ape. Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. It was a huge success. And the entire time, Myla was attempting to sue Elvira and KHJTV for taking the rights to her character. She never won that lawsuit. It impacted her the rest of her life. She says she's going to the bank with my money and she's buying fancy million dollar homes. I don't even have electricity. I can't afford to feed my dog. And you can't blame her. You can't blame Myla for feeling that way. I would too. That was supposed to be her show. She was supposed to be making the money. There was no Elvira at the beginning. There was only Vampira. I'm bitter about it too. Still, Myla had acquired enough fame from the 1994 Ed Wood biopic that she was doing pretty well. She started to appear in a number of documentaries about Wood. And this man said that he, he yearned, he had planned to have or hoped to have Vampira in his production. I thought he wants to grab a hold of my heels and pull me back down into the, you know, nickels and dimes mire from which I had clawed my way up. And I was incensed. I thought, I wouldn't work for that idiot. How dare he to aspire to me, right? And she was successfully selling her art and memorabilia to fans across the world. Things went very well until I think around the turn of the century, she got evicted from her house. She lived in a converted garage. She eventually, in 2005, 
moved right off Sunset Boulevard, and she was much happier there. And that's where she passed away off Serrano, off Sunset in Los Angeles. Myla Nermi passed away of natural causes on January 10th, 2008, at the age of 85. This is when her niece Sandra collected her writings and started to catalog Myla's life. I asked Sandra what she admired most about her aunt. The fact that she never sold out, that has impressed people a lot. Here she had this character that she created, and she was offered lots of money to sell her rights. KBC wanted to syndicate the show. Myla said, no, no, no. I would rather be poverty-stricken than lose control of my character, Vampira. And her honesty. Myla was brutally honest. And like I said, never sold out, never gave up. She lived for over 60 years, most of those years, as a disabled woman and a single woman. And she survived Hollywood, which is a cutthroat town. Let me tell you, I've learned that. Those things really impress me about Myla. Finally, Sandra set out to find her long-lost cousin, the child of Vampira and Orson Welles. And eventually, she did. In 2021, he was identified as 76-year-old David Putter. Through DNA, Ancestry.com, and they matched my daughter and David as first cousin once removed or something. So he called her on the phone. And I had been at the grocery store and I walked in and my daughter had this smug look on her face and she says, I know who Myla's son is. I know his name. I know where he lives. And I have his phone number. I said, oh, come on, get out of here. You know, that's not even funny. She said, no, I'm serious. I know his name. And I looked at her and I said, give it to me now. So she did. And I was on the phone within one minute. I mean, I was calling. That's how anxious I was. And I got him on the first call. He asked me, do you know who my mother is? And I said, oh my God, because I had not sold my book yet. It was not quite finished. I had another chapter and a half maybe to finish, and then I was going to be done. And I said, you're talking to the only person in the world that can tell you everything you'd ever want to know about your mother. I'm writing a book about her life. Really? I said, yes. Your mother is Myla Normi, a.k.a. Vampira. And he was silent and he says, oh my God, I've waited 75 years to know who my mother was and I find out she's a vampire. <laughs> Just cracked up. I was so happy. I have not met him in person yet, but he's sending for my daughter and I to come visit him in Vermont from Oregon. And he apparently has his mother's eyes. And so I'm very anxious to meet David in person. He'll be the closest thing I'll ever have to a brother. David's adopted mother died when he was only three. So he's never known a mother. And I've sent him a vampire statue, which he proudly displays in his home. And he feels his mother around him now. He knows who she is. He talks to her and calls her mom. It just touches my heart. He thinks that Myla's there around. That makes my heart happy. Won't you come in, Mr. Gobo? We can have a nice little... Ah! <laughs> step on the cat's tail. I don't see any cat. Oh, we don't have a cat. Uh, just his tail. <laughs> this episode of Ephemeral was written and produced by Trevor Young, with producers Max and Alex Williams. Sandra Nimi is author of Glamourkul, The Passions and Pain of the Real Vampira, Myla Nurmi. Big thanks to Feral House Publishing for coordinating the interview. 
and we want to hear from you. Are you a Vampira fan? Who are your favorite characters from the horror universe? Let us know on social media. We're at Ephemeral Show. And for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.